0: Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J Body. This is episode 58, Act 1, Alex Santiago Hirao processing The Collective Scars recorded October 16th, 2022.
1: Let's
0: start it up now.
1: Hey, hey, TA Podians. Welcome to Teaching Artistry. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Munsee Lenape people in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Hey, y'all. Listenership is up from last year to this year. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for being part of our global community. We have now surpassed 35,000 listens. Thank you so much for choosing this indie podcast. We absolutely love and appreciate you. Hey, let's keep it going and help us Help get us to 40,000 listens by inviting your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or we can be heard on any podcast player. Also follow us on Facebook and Instagram and head over to teachingartistry.org to access episodes, guest bios, our video series, merch, and more. We believe in equity, Having deep conversations and celebrating the learning that comes from differences in opinion. However, with its new leadership, Twitter no longer aligns with our values. Teaching our history would like to engage on platforms, albeit imperfect, that attempt uplift humanity without promoting oppressive, aggressive, hate-filled sentiment, nor advancing disinformation. So, like I said, find us on Facebook and Instagram. All right. So, let's move on to our guest. I have known Alexander Santiago Hirao for a really long time. I mean, we have been colleagues since I have been a part of the New York City arts education field, so uh, about 20 years. And I loved this opportunity to get to know him better and learn more about his, his specific origins and growing up, his work at New York Theatre Workshop, and his experience with Theatre of the Oppressed. I'm excited for you to listen to this, so here, let's get into it. Here is episode 58, act one, Alexander Santiago Hirao processing the collective scars hello alex
2: hello courtney how are you
1: i'm really good i'm really
2: good today how are you i'm doing great i'm happy it's sunday and um it's sunny outside mm-hmm. and um went to the gym this morning i'm energized okay oh, i'm in. ready for this combo
1: <laughs> well welcome to teaching rsg with Courtney J. Body, that's me. Uh, absolutely, this podcast celebrates artists, culture, and equity, and I'm really excited to have you on as guest and learn more about your journey. You, we just had a little tête-à-tête, um, so I have a little a little idea, but I really want to dig in. I want to know all the things. Um, but you, you said that you're doing well. You got good, good juju, good energy today. But overall, how are you doing? um, in, in the year 2022.
2: <laughs> I'm doing well. I can't complain. Um, I've been busy. I've been, um, working hard. I've been, um, concentrating on, um, health, wellness, healing, um, and just being a better human being for the people that I work with, um, mm. which has been, I think, a lifelong journey. Uh, getting better at, at, at being a better person. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm doing well. I'm doing well. That's great. Um, So where do you work currently? What's your current role? I'm the director of education at New York Theatre Workshop. Um, we are an off-Broadway theater company um, in the East Village. So for those that are listening that, that don't know about New York Theatre Workshop, I, I always like to say... If you know your musical theater history, then you know that New York Theater Workshop was the birthplace of Rent, the musical. <laughs> that little musical that that um, that sort of went on to 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 change the the landscape of the American musical theater. So, I was sixteen, growing up in Puerto Rico when Rent Rent uh, sort of landed on the on the consciousness of the American theater and the popular culture and um, sort of revolutionize um, the world in a way. Um, and it's it's always been sort of like a pinch me thing to work at the workshop because as a, as a kid, it just, you know. Seems so far away. You no, know, as a kid, it was so transformational. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, and so the energy of RENT and Jonathan Larson and that history, still very much permeates the walls of New York Theatre Workshop. But of course, the company has gone on to do a bunch of other things, you know, mm-hmm. Hadestown most recently, and Heidi Shrek's What the Constitution Means to Me, and Slave Play, and and a bunch of other things that sort of keep pushing the the, the American theatre forward in form and aesthetic. So yeah, it's been great to work there. So I'm the director of education there, and I'm in charge of all of our school programming, student matinees, teaching artists residencies, um, community-based programs, master classes for young people and adults, um, our administrative fellowship program um, for um, emerging uh, theater administrators um, uh, from all walks of life, but really predominantly uh, BIPOC folk. Um, and queer folk and, and trans folk, uh, as a way to to diversify the field of theater administration. And I'm sure I'm missing something else. Oh, and elements of our audience <laughs> engagement as well. So I, I do a little bit of everything at the workshop.
1: <laughs> and and um, you said you've worked there for eight years, just had an anniversary, right? Yeah, October
2: 14th. I didn't even celebrate it.
1: Wow, well, let's celebrate it here.
2: Yes, yeah, it's eight years of the workshop.
1: Happy yeah, Happy yeah, New York workshop. Theater Workshop, or do you just call it the Workshop? Is that what you call it?
2: We call it the Workshop. Yeah, yeah, New yeah. York Theater Workshop, the Workshop. Um, NYTW. <laughs> yeah,
1: can we come up with like a cute um anniversary name from the Workshop? It, at New Victory, we call it your New Vic aversary <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah
2: yeah yeah. I don't know. Workshop anniversary. Workshop anniversary. We can keep workshop in it, you know, which is you know, as as we want to do in the workshop. That is the culture of New York theater workshop. <laughs> really, we are uh, a theater and a workshop. In fact, there's the workshop space is busier probably than our production side because we only produce five shows a year, mm-hmm. and there are so many readings and 29 hour developmental workshops um that we do so it's it's always a space for the artists to work on their craft without the pressure of auditioning for producers or feeling that they need to end up on our season it's it's about them and their oh, space. That's so that's so that sets us apart in a way you know so many there's many um theater companies that don't develop or don't have a developmental arm so mm-hmm. and that is really strong at the workshop
1: I've, I've, I've several questions about this. One, do you, how do artists, um, you know, get chosen to be a part of a workshop?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, many different ways, but, uh, we have a predominantly, um, through our usual suspects program, we have, uh, a program of affiliated artists that are in our artistic community. Cause the other thing that, that really, really fully sort of, um, Uh, describes us is is the sense that we are a community of artists. Um, And so we have this program called The Usual Suspects uh, uh, and we have playwrights and actors and directors and stage managers and designers. And uh, there's over 600, not all of them are active, but um, the first call of proposals goes out to that, group of artists Mm -hmm. that have been invited to join um, that group. Um,
1: Over the years, uh, in the past.
2: Over over the years, right? And it's a mixture of folks, folks that uh, are highly established, like Tony Kushner, right? Or Mm -hmm. mid-career folks, um, or emergent folks, or folks that have gone through our artistic fellowship program and have been invited to join the group. so it's a mixture of folks, right? Folks that we that we sort of see their work and respond to it and say, come and hang out with us. Um, yeah, so to folks that have gone through our programs. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's by invitation at this moment and it's you know the artistic team getting together and saying, who are we excited by that we want to invite? And so those folks in the Usual Suspects program get free rehearsal space at New York Theatre Workshop and they can use computers and they can make photocopies for their scripts and they can um, hang out in our kitchen and, you know, and work and take meetings. Um, and then, as I was saying, we, we request proposals for um, our Mondays at Three Reading series um, where we, we, we get a, a play or work in development and uh, the, the, the piece is cast, there's a director attached to it and they come in at nine in the morning, they sort of rehearse um, throughout the day and then they do a, a reading, a close reading for um, folks that are invited by the creative team, by, by, the, by the playwright. Um, and then we have a series of um, residencies for artists um, over the summer, one in partnership with Adelphi University and another one with Dartmouth College, and the idea is to get artists out of the city, bring them to a place where they can spend time thinking about their work with collaborators um, to develop. Um, the uh, residency at Adelphi typically happens in June, and that it doesn't have a public presentation component and it's, you know, I believe, more geared towards directors than Playwrights um, or ensembles or folks that are devising. Um, and the works can be at any point in their development. And then the Dartmouth uh, residency at Dartmouth College is, I think, more geared towards playwrights because there's a public presentation component. Um, so again, you bring a team around it, you work on it for a week, and then you do a public presentation.
1: And how are, are you, Are is the education department involved in this program or how? that? Yeah, I mean,
2: I think the the thing that has been really lovely about my time at the workshop is that um, education is its own department, but we're also considered part of the artistic team at, uh, at the workshop. So I report directly to the artistic director and also to our executive director, but education is seen as an artistic endeavor Uh the workshop, which is not typical uh, of many education departments. Uh, my face
1: uh, light up. Oof.
2: Yeah. Yes, in some you know, no shade, but in some places the education department it's part of marketing <laughs> or it's part of, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's sort of an yeah. income generating mm-hmm. um, program. Not to say that we don't generate income, but well we can talk more about that but um but no um we're sort of seen um and understood as an artistic process um the work that we do and so uh i participate in artistic meetings um uh, season planning i read proposals for our workshop our developmental workshop um, for our summer residencies and then i'm very much involved with um the selection of our artistic fellows Um, we have two fellowship programs one that is uh, for uh, playwrights and directors and then one uh, for theater administrators i run the one that is for theater administrators out of the education department Um, but as i said participate in the selection of our uh, directors and playwrights and and they get to spend a, a full year with us um, uh they receive stipends and they can get to work on their craft and um and uh, and just hone their skills and receive mentorship by the artistic team. yeah, and it's been really, really just a, a wonderful opportunity to 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 really work with artists um that are emerging that are that are exciting um you know, mm-hmm. Martina myok was uh, a fellow um, oops, at the oops, workshop. She is the the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright of Cost of Living, which is now oh, yes, which is now uh, making its Broadway debut mm-hmm. at Montana Theater Club. Mm-hmm. And Martina was a fellow at the workshop my first year there. Um, and I remember being at the first table read of Cost of Living, wow. you know, and engaging with her on notes and feedback on, on, a, on, on, on the piece and to just to see how far she's gone with it and that it received the Pulitzer and that now it's making its Broadway debut and has had a really wonderful reception. It's sort of an example of like how exciting it is to, to be working with artists and have proximity to artists. Yeah. Yeah, and so and the other thing is that also uh, our rehearsal space is right on top of our administrative offices and so artists are constantly in the space and as part of the, the artistic team I also, you know, pre-pandemic, <laughs> now we have bubbles, but uh, observe rehearsals and engage with playwrights and directors and, and gave notes on, on, on the work and attend early previews and just engage on the art making as much as, as, as the education and community engagement elements and audience engagement elements of the production. So that has been really exciting because it's, it's not my experience, you know, from, from other arts education environments. So that's, has allowed me to grow tremendously artistically.
1: Oh, I'm really enjoying learning about the workshop because I, I thought I knew things, but now I'm, I'm learning, which is good. I'm. Yeah. I, it's making me uh, uh, think about a couple of different things. This, this program. One, I have a question and two, I just wanted to share a parallel. Like the new victory has um, a similar program uh, called lab works yeah. run out of our artistic programming department. Education is involved, but not directly meaning yeah. we're not running it, but we are involved. And, Um, It's about supporting emerging or artists who are interested in making theater for young audiences, you know, the widest age ranges. Um, uh, Every year we choose four um, uh, artists who um, are from, you know, represent historically marginalized identities, um, BIPOC, uh, LGBTQIA, uh, artists with disabilities, et cetera. and they are nurtured for that year. They are nurtured to whatever they're interested in working on. If they are working on something, then um, there's opportunities for them to, to have that, yes, that space. And then also um, have an open rehearsal where there is an invited audience that would give them feedback or in the same target range age range that they're interested in um, developing the piece for. And then um, we're still trying to figure out, and this is my question, we're trying to figure out what, because we are not a producing house, we are a presenting house, there is this gap that we have between supporting emerging artists or artists creating new work, and we're new work development, and we're not the producing team, we can't be, we're not designed that way um and then we present but we tend to present works that have been produced and toured and you know so there's this this conundrum that we sort of developed in in a way that um I think we would like to find a way to solve so I guess my my question to you is multi multi multi-layered let me see if I can break it down and then you can take it step by step the first one is you know with a with a Maybe using cost of living as the example that was eight years ago. Like what happened between then and and it going to MTC and having its Broadway de- debut and how how if the workshop was how was the workshop involved? Two, what does what does, uh, being engaged in the art making components of the workshop as the director of education what does that do for you creatively? What does it do for you in terms of the other um, more education-based programming that you run? So those are two big, I think, big questions. So you can take them however you want.
2: Yeah. I mean, in a way they're sort of, um, sort of separate. I mean, on the first side of what the, the workshop does is that I think just, you know, on one side it gives, um, space for artists to work and develop their craft. And that also comes from this ethos at the workshop, which is about cultivating a relationship throughout the the life of an artist, right? So it's a continued conversation, right? And so um, the workshop space, there are no promises in the workshop space. It's not going to necessarily end up in performance. We have five spots, the chances that things are going to get into performance are limited, right? Um, and that's not not, not the point. Um, but what has happened with that space is that artists can invite for those sort of invited presentations, literary uh, directors at other departments, uh, at other theaters, right? They can, in you know, we don't necessarily encourage that they invite producers, right? Because it's not about making an audition, but some people have invited producers and certainly invite other artists um, that they want to hear feedback from. It depends on where they are in their developmental process. Um, And so artists throughout that process of development, I think gain tremendous confidence and advance their work um, and then submit that work to other developmental spaces around the city and around the country. And then that goes on that ho- hopefully leads to production or further live um, for it. And, you know, you know, we, you know, Cost of Living had its own path. We were not necessarily involved with it, mm. other than our, our initial space for Martina to develop it. But we had a continued conversation with, with Martina and um, she wrote another piece called Sanctuary City mm-hmm. that we you know, fell in love with and produced. And we were at the Lucille Ortel doing a production of it in March of 2020 when the world went to hell in a handbasket. Um, and that said, sat there for over a year. And then when we came back from the pandemic, we were able to, to produce it. And that, that, that show has now gone to other fantastic productions around the country. Um, and so there are many examples of shows that have gone through a developmental process or part of their developmental process of the workshop that had made it to the seasons of other of other theaters. I think there was one year where I could just, uh, in the, the public theater season where I could say, this show and this show and this show, they all went through the developmental workshop. Um, at uh the developmental process as the workshop or one of their initial steps ain't no mo that's going to broadway now that the public produce was a project uh uh, that uh stevie walker webb the director did as part of his fellowship at the workshop and you know and then now this is making its broadway debut so it's like you know it's so it it's about i think the 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 opportunity to support artists to give them space and then to invite people to listen to the work and then get you know give them an opportunity to focus on the craft not towards production but just to hone their skills and make the work the best that they, it can be and then people hear about it and you know hopefully if if they if, if the if the play suits the aesthetic and interests of the theater hopefully that would you know, because not all of the pieces that we support are pieces that we would produce necessarily, sort exactly. of, you know, it's about supporting the artist mm-hmm. uh, first and foremost. Um, in terms of your second question about what it's done for me, artistically, I think it, it has opened, you know, um, my mind to what theater can be or what the theatrical event can be you know, um, and that has been really essential to, you know, our work in schools. Um, I sort of knew it instinctively, right? That the theatrical event can be many different things, right? Um, But I do think that there is a way sort of theater education is approached and um, that it could be all about putting on the play, (laughs) right? Or, um, Or not, Uh, experimenting both in terms of form and content. And at the workshop, that's what we do. You know, a theatrical event can be a solo performance. It can be a devised piece by an ensemble. It could be a musical. It could be the so-called well-written play. It could be a play that jumps with chronology. It can be a play that uses multimedia and video. Um, You name it. It could be an adaptation of a classic.
1: Um, By the way, you just described TYA, (laughs) Theatre for Young Audiences.
2: Right, you know. Theatre for Babies. (laughs) So that has been really exciting um, because then you come to schools, not only with teaching artists and residencies that, that, you know guide students to create that kind of work that that you know but also bring them to see that kind of work um that they wouldn't otherwise get to see um and so yeah it's been about constant you know exploration and that has been exciting like we don't have to do it the same way every time yeah and do you identify as an artist Well, you know, I think that has been like a long, like a long, you know, lifetime struggle that there are days where I feel like I am an artist. I've done a lot of artistic stuff. Um, And there are days that I think of myself as a theater educator. There's days that I think of myself as a theater administrator. And there's days that I think of myself as an applied theater practitioner. I've worn so many hats. Um, You know, recently I've, you know, I have such respect for artists that that work on their craft daily, you know, and make such sacrifices in an economy that really doesn't quite support them as they mm-hmm. should be supported. Mm-hmm. That sometimes I feel like a sense of shame calling myself an artist, but more often than not, I sort of call myself a theater maker because I feel that 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 that's what we're doing whether we do it in schools, whether we do it with our youth ensemble, whether we do it with um, the artists that we're supporting, that that all of us together as a collective at the workshop and with our roster of teaching artists and with my my, my colleagues in the education department, we are Making space to create theater.
1: I like that. I mean, I I think of myself as a theater maker as well because yeah. it does sort of encompass all all sorts of different yeah. slashes as as it was and as it work or can be. And um, the I hear you about the you know those who have made you know who make being a a professional artist their main profession. Yeah. And yet I don't, I don't think we need to undercut ourselves because we have made, you know, theater uh, administration, our main,
2: you know, our, our, our trunk,
1: you know, because we have the branches, we have the bark.
2: I, I, I should also sort of like, you know, um, not cut myself, you know, (laughs) uh, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a theater of the oppressed practitioner and I'm a, I'm a joker. I'm a, you know, I've been teaching theater of the oppressed at NYU now for 10 years and then doing, you know, theater of the oppressed work for a long time. And Augusto Wall says that we're all artists, we're all actors.
1: Exactly.
2: <laughs> um, that, um, that the theater and um, theatricality, you know, it's, it's a human right and it's been, taken away from us in this capitalist world where some people act, some people create, some people have axes and others don't. So, so yes. Yeah. I, I, I am an artist too.
1: Good. Own that. Own that. I, I definitely want to get into your theater of the oppressed um, experience and knowledge, but first I want to go back to your childhood. Yeah. So where did you grow up um, and how were you engaged in arts as a kid?
2: I grew up in a small town in the middle of Puerto Rico called Utuado, Um, and uh, I grew up with my grandparents. It's a rural town in the mountains, um, big in territory, small in population, and, um, you know, I grew up going to uh, private schools in Puerto Rico where, like, my grandparents would pay, like, $50 a month or, like, you know, for me to attend... This like little private school, and then I went to the Catholic school in the town where my grandparents were like paying like a hundred dollars a month for me to, to go, right? Uh, and you know, I grew up in the '90s. i you know, I was born in 1980, grew up in the '90s, and and um, went to a high school before the internet. <laughs> there were no, there was no computer lab. There was no, there was barely a library. Um but in all of my schooling, the thing that we had in common is that there was an arts program or our version of an arts program, right? Which was like, you know the teachers and the principal was really excited about putting the, the Halloween pageant or the Christmas pageant or whatever, you know, having the choir. So I grew up, you know, singing in the choir. I grew up, you know, dancing. I grew up participating in the, in the you know, plays., um, you know Puerto Rican culture is a highly artistic culture so Mm -hmm. it's you know we are we love to dance and to sing and to put on a show and you know and yeah yeah so I think I've all you know in a sense I've always been an artist because I've always been doing it There was never um, sequential instruction in the arts. There was never an acting class. You know, it just came naturally to us, right? Um, You know, there was never a a class devoted to the study of, you know, Puerto Rican playwrights. Mm -hmm. One here and there in the Spanish class or like Spanish literature class, but it was a survey class of, you know, novels and short stories and poems and plays written by, you know, Puerto Rico, but there was never that, you know, and there's no nonprofit theater culture in Puerto Rico and there is a commercial sector, um, but, you know, it's not like we would all go to San Juan to see plays all the time, right? It just didn't happen. There was no theater in my town, no cinema, right? But, But culturally we're sort of very rich, you know, so yeah, that's where I grew up. and when i when I left high school and went to college, you know, I, I sort of always wanted to pursue theater, right? But I never at the same time never got that the, the cultural message that I was allowed to do that. Yeah. So while we're a, a really lively artistic culture, the idea of having a profession you know, a profession in the arts is not, you know, recommended, encouraged. So I was talkative. And so what do they say to a kid that it's talkative, you know, go and become a lawyer. So I went to college to pursue that and quickly realized this is not what I want to do. And then I started taking theater classes here and there.
1: When you were, when you were in high school, why did you want to, even though you weren't getting the message, what was it about theater that was saying, oh, you know, I might want to do this
2: the thing that was exciting exciting for me as a closeted queer kid in puerto rico right is that it gave me the opportunity it it was through acting initially just gave me the opportunity to be someone other than myself Mm. to play um and we were allowed to play in within the confines of the play and I, i i got to do things that i couldn't do in my my personal or sort of you know public or real life right um, and that was exciting to me, that was quite exciting because it, the distancing of the role and the character allowed me some freedom to explore and to try things that, that Alex in real life wouldn't try. Mm-hmm. That was exciting to me, you know, and that was, I wanted to live there, right? To do things that otherwise wasn't allowed to do because the character called for it. And just to be expressive yeah that was the the first thing, and then, yeah to tell stories, yeah
1: cool, so you're in school, you're pre law you're like mm, not so much, you're taking theater classes, acting yeah. classes,
2: and you know, feeling like a you know you know I was in upstate New York, it was cold, oh, so this is you went to Cornell, this is where yes, went. exactly, went directly to Cornell mm-hmm. and luckily it's a small town so th- the the transition was not as bad even though the winters were hard. also mountains mountains yeah so it's you know rural town so that was a great transition cold, though? Cold? Was that it was really cold <laughs> oh i know oh i know i went to school what was it
1: 20 minutes away uh, east of you right maybe a th- half hour yeah so oh, i i'm aware i'm aware of central yeah. new york and how chilly it is um, yeah so so you're so okay I just want to pick because Cornell is a really good school it is <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to acknowledge that yeah. and you went for pre-law but they also had a very big theater department didn't they
2: yes yeah 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 yeah. but I felt very much out of you know I, I wouldn't I mean I regret in a way I sort of regret that I didn't do a double major right because I went to Pursue a degree in urban studies, and my undergraduate degrees in urban studies because, you know, I I I I didn't know what urban studies was before Cornell, and I learned about it, and it was a degree that mixed all of these things that were interesting to me: sociology and um, history, and economics, and community development. And I thought, oh, if I'm going to be a lawyer, um, and I was very interested in cities and in the way they evolved, um, still am, right? Um, So that's what I I, I majored in, but I probably should have done an undergraduate degree in theater too. But to make a long story short, I I felt very out of place too, right? I mean, I, I was I was able to communicate, but I was surrounded by it's a great school, so I was surrounded by kids that had many more resources than I had, you know, had gone to prep schools and you name it, and I. I remember the first paper that I wrote at Cornell. I didn't know how to change the font size on Word. And I was so afraid to ask somebody for help because the last thing you do is ask for help, you know? Um, And I handed in a 10 point font paper. The first thing that, of course, the professor said in the seminar is like, you know, learn how to change the font size. But that's, you know, that was the kid that I was, you know, back then. And so I felt, you know, out of place until I found my community. And, um, but one of the ways that I found community was through our span- Latinx theater company on campus, which is called Teatro Taller, which stands for Theater Workshop in Spanish. What? Yeah.
1: Love that. Full circle.
2: Full circle. Yeah. And so I now next year, the, the, the group is celebrating 30 years. Yeah. Wow. And I was there not far from the inception of the group. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a, a, a student group that did produce plays by Latin American or Latino playwrights um, in Spanish or English or Spanglish. And also by um, Spanish writers from Spain, mm. so you know, Golden Age classics as well. And it was a, it was a, it was an artistic community. It was founded by um, a Puerto Rican student that had been there uh, two years ahead of me, um, and um, she was in the theater department. And the theater department wasn't, you know, it for her, and mm-hmm. so decided to create the space and um I I joined and started doing theater and um acting, producing, directing. Um and we were also developing new work. So you know Latino playwrights, which you know don't get a lot of opportunities for developmental back then, right? Didn't get a lot of opportunities to develop their own work. Theaters did (laughs) were not producing a lot of Latino plays, you know, would come to us and say, could the troupe you know, workshop this piece and so we did and took some work to um, university festivals in Europe and Mexico yeah wow. so that's that space was a school for me in terms of theater yeah and
1: okay so so you were you were there for how many years
2: so I was there for four years and then I stayed an extra year to do a, a master's degree in city planning which mm-hmm. I never finished because I realized oh no the, I, I've made a mistake actually the thing that made me realize that I had made a mistake and that I was like pushing it a little bit too much now and that I really needed to do something that was more authentic to me I got cast in the um so that year that I stayed mm-hmm. extra additional year while I was a graduate student I got cast in a production of company in the theater department for the main stage of the theater department, I auditioned and I got it. Mm-hmm. Just just for fun, it was like, oh, this could be my extracurricular activity, you know, to stay connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Cornell had not done a musical in a long time. Mm-hmm. I had never done a musical, you know what I mean? You've I just never done a musical. I never done a musical. I just could sing, okay. you know. And uh, I did company. Yeah, and, and you did. I was cool. like, oh wait a minute, I just, <laughs> I can't do this no more. <laughs> I had more fun at company yeah. in that process mm-hmm. than I than I had in my program, so I finished all my courses, but I never finished the thesis, which again is another regret I should have I should have had another title, but who cares? Um, came to the city and started working in the city, and then the rest is history.
1: So what well, we want to hear the history. so okay. what yeah, sure. so so okay, so you did this production. It was like, yeah. my life has changed i I need to commit to this this like thing that's yeah. driving me stop dilly dallying. <laughs> Cause yeah. companies not that's a hard musical. It is a hard musical. So the like, yeah. fact that you've never done one before,
2: I think cast oh my god, it was really it was really hard because there's so many Bobby, Bobby, baby, <laughs> bobby, bobby, bobby. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Uh and I probably didn't do it right, right there. Right. Too many You were great. Um and, um, and then, so you said that you moved to, to, to New York City. So what was the. So I finished the year. Um, mm-hmm. It was all but thesis. Right. And I was yeah. because it was a, a one year program. So you could either finish your thesis in a year or you could like, oh, we'll do your coursework it. and then finish it. Right. So that's what I did. I sort of finished all my coursework and moved to New Jersey with my best friend mm-hmm. and then started working in the city. And because my training at the time was planning yes. and community development, I got an internship with an environmental justice nonprofit, um, worked with sort of several community-based nonprofits. And then while I was at Cornell, I was very much involved with the Cornell Community, uh, uh, Cornell Public Service Center, which is now called the, I think the, the Center for Community Engagement or Center for Engagement. Okay. But back then, I was very involved with them. And Teach for America sort of like works through them for their recruitment of, you know, seniors to be in the teaching core of Teach for America. Mm-hmm. So I learned of a, of a fellowship, a one-year fellowship to be a recruitment fellow for Teach for America and recruit young people. Okay. And so I got the job. It was like $26,000 a year. Awesome. Um, this is before I knew anything about, you know, education or education policy. Um, but I was recruiting um, students um, in the South. I was recruiting students at the University of Florida, University of Georgia, and then Spelman and Morehouse, which was really exciting for me to, to you know, this is before I knew that Teach for America was highly problematic when it comes to. Yes, yes. yes to education policy and and a host of other things um you know which we won't get into now but it was a, it was an education uh, nonetheless um and while I was there um full time recruiting folks and sort of getting an education in all things education policy I was also I also had a fellowship at Repertorio Español the Van Leer Fellowship to direct a play there. So I directed um, a play by René Marquez, you know, you know, perhaps the most beloved Puerto Rican playwright. Um, and I, one of his least known plays called La Casa Sin Reloj, which is the house without a clock. It's a more absurd play. Yeah. And that experience would seal the deal. It was like, oh, I really, you know, I was, Testing things, you know what I mean. Yeah, and I knew I didn't want to be a director, and I knew I didn't want to. I just didn't have that training, and also didn't want to be in the hustle. But I had done education, and I was doing Theater of the Oppressed in communities, and so I was like, "Oh, this is exciting!" and and then learned about um, the teaching artist certificate program that at that time, um, Chris Vine was starting um, at CUNY. Oh.
1: Oh, yeah, this is, you know, 2000,
2: 2004, 2003, 2004, 2005, I'm trying to remember exactly. But anyway, um, he, uh, the, the creative arts team for many years was in residency uh, at NYU, and they were moving to CUNY for the School of Professional Studies to, to be in residency there, and then ultimately create their applied theater program. Right. Um, there. And so they started with the summer teaching artist certificate, theater teaching art certificate program. And um, so it was four classes. Um, one of the instructors was Russell Granite.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, and um, I was one of just two people that took all four classes. So mm-hmm. I, like one of the first graduates of that certificate program that doesn't exist anymore. So much so that I never got, I never got a diploma or certificate. Years you later, the actual like, certificate. No, <laughs> years later, it's like, oh, we realized that we never sent you the certificate. It was before it all, you know. But anyway, um, my my other colleague that has had gone through the entire series with me, Elise, really stating in contact with. Russell, who at that time was a direct, director of professional development peer exchange at the Center for Arts Education. Yes. And so she became his assistant there. And I stayed in touch with her. And I now at this point was thinking, oh, I think I want to be in the world of um, art education. By this point, I had, I had, uh, I had a full-time job um, for mentoring USA, which was Matilda Cuomo, the, the former first lady of New York uh, nonprofit um, for school-based mentoring uh, 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 programs. Yeah. So I was working with her and I was working with the and and I was recruiting mentors and training mentors and placing them in schools. And so I was education adjacent because we were working with schools all around the city. Yeah. But I was like, oh, I wanted to get into arts education. Um, and so I went to meet with Elise at the Center for Arts Education. Russell was there and he said, oh by the way, we have this job. <laughs> that you should apply to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I did, and, and then I joined the Center for Arts Education. When did you get
1: trained in Theater of the Oppressed?
2: Yeah, good question. So I was at Cornell. I, I, I only took one theater class at Cornell, which is a world drama class um, in the theater department with Rebecca Schneider, um, who is now at Brown University in the Performance Studies program there. Um, and she was a student of Richard Chechner, father of performance studies at NYU, who you know, interviewed and and uh, uh, worked with Boal mm-hmm. um, and wrote about Boal for the drama review, many, many classic articles. And she introduced me to Augusta Boal. It was a world drama class and there was a section on Boal and theater of the oppressed. And it was the only I was the only Latino in the class, number one. This was the only, you know, Latin theater maker <laughs> that was, ex- you know, being explored. Um, and, uh, and I just connected to the politics of the work because yeah. at that time I wasn't a theater major, I was an urban studies major. Yeah. So <laughs> this is the time when I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute there's space in theater for people that have my interests and my background. There is a role for theater and community development and politics. Mm -hmm. There's a role for theater and and liberation movements and social justice. Um, So I started training on my own and and following. um, And then it wasn't until 2006 that I was able to, Um, this is after I had sort of moved to the city, had gone through this, uh, arts education work, had taken class with Chris Vine, who also is a well-known theater of the oppressed practitioner and Joker and had worked with Augusto. And I, it wasn't until 2006 that I was able to go to the pedagogy and theater of the oppressed conference. Um, and that's where I met Augusto Boal and his son Julian and a network of um jokers and theater of the oppressed facilitators from around the world Mm -hmm. and i got so involved immediately with the organization that i joined the board immediately wow fast forward i became the president of the organization um, and got to work with uh, augusto bring him to conferences in the us and to this day i'm very good friends with his son julian and um again a network of, of of folks yeah
1: Um, Can you explain, because there will be many listeners who aren't unfamiliar, what is theater of the oppressed?
2: Yes. So theater of the oppressed is um, the umbrella term for a uh, host of techniques and uh, exercises and practices that use theater to address oppression um, by the oppressed for the oppressed. Um, so it's 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 what Boile calls a rehearsal for revolution or rehearsal for real life, um, uh, where we look at uh, the oppression that is affecting a particular community and that community gains the tools to uh, tell their stories. And um, at the same time, through a technique called Forum Theater, um, uh, basically attempt potential solutions Mm -hmm. to the issues that are affecting them, right? Not putting the burden on the oppressed, but many of the strategies and potential solutions could be, how do we engage potential allies? How do we engage folks, Um, but from, but led from the oppressed, right? You know, Mm -hmm. it's about who is driving The agenda in terms of liberation and then how do we bring people along to fight alongside us in liberation and so all of that is explored theatrically it's not the you know often people think that theater of the oppressed is creating pieces about oppression and social issues and then presenting them in front of audiences to convince them (laughs) to change you know something right and and in fact that's not what theater of the oppressed is it's really about Um, a space for communities to to really empower themselves and gain the skills and the strategies to implement in the real world in different ways it's like
1: an incubator
2: yeah it's sort of a space for growth and exploration and strategizing Mm -hmm. that sees theater as one of many tools yeah for liberation, you know, uh, a lot of practitioners think theater can change the world. And we typically say theater is one tool that can help to change the world or advance change or provoke or spark change, but by itself, theater cannot do it, right? It has... Many limitations, and as practitioners, we have many limitations as well. But can we envision a world where, through theater, where we can learn together, collaborate, organize, um, imagine the world we want to see? Which is difficult. You know, it's really difficult to imagine a world without oppression because we're so conditioned to only think through an oppressive lens. Um, so, so that is that is the goal of theater of the oppressed. And of course, the, the now the techniques have been, you know, initially they were used with uh, landless peasants in Brazil and oppressed communities all around uh, um, uh, Brazil. And now, of course, they are used all around the world in many different contexts, you know, from education to psychotherapy to community organizing, you name it. And there's many, m- many different techniques within the arsenal of techniques, you know, ultimately, I think the most important thing about theater of the oppressed, and this is a long answer, but the most important theater of the oppressed is about returning the means of production of theater to folks, right? Because they've been sort of taken away, you know, by education, by the capitalist system. It's about everybody has a right to use theater as a, as a as a as a tool to tell their stories, to learn through theater. That's the most important thing. Yeah.
1: Um, and what is, uh, what is a Joker?
2: The Joker is the facilitator, you know, it's like the, 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 the Joker in the deck of cards, you know, that could be anything depending on the game. Um, the Joker is, um, there's an entire system of the Joker, but in its most basic, um, form, it is that person that is the the informed theater where we're breaking the fourth wall and we are inviting the audience to take the place of the protagonist to try to change something mm-hmm. it is that person that is you know the, the 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 nexus between the audience and the the actors on stage the audience which we call the spectators because they are spectating and reflecting and then being invited into action and whether they come on stage or not the fact that we are actually giving them permission to think about what they're seeing on stage differently and that they could potentially do something. Mm. It, it, it's enough to shift that dynamic. I mean, it doesn't go as far as, as it would go if somebody actually jumps on stage, but right. many people don't jump on stage the first time around, um, even after we have warmed them up. But, you know, the Joker, you know, some people call it the facilitator. Some of us call it the difficultator because it is somebody that is often questioning, yeah. right?
1: Facilitator.
2: Yeah, it's about... It's an inquiry, the, the forum theater experience is an inquiry-based experience. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the actors on stage, the ensemble on stage that is sharing the story that ends badly, right? Because it ends in failure of the protagonist. It, it ends in the oppression continues yeah. as a way to provoke the audience. You know, what can we do here, right? We know that this happens over and over again. Um, and of course, these are stories that come from the community they're fictionalized, you know, to a certain extent to protect participants and just provide a level of distance and not re-trigger and all of that. But um, those are stories that come from the community. So they have happened, right? And and people can identify that probably they have happened to them in similar ways or yeah. to people in their communities. But yeah, the, the Joker is that nexus, right? It's, you know, the the, the forum theater piece it's asking a question of the audience and the 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 joker is asking questions of the audience to have a dialogue around what we have seen to ask people to come and try interventions and if we see the same kind of intervention happen over and over again we sort of say what else can happen here (laughs) sort of like engage and challenge people we push folks uh to challenge them not to break them or to win you know so that's the idea. And also we can be actors in the piece. Sometimes somebody might come in and say, I want to have a dialogue with this person that is not in the scene. And we say, sure, here's, you know, and we, you side coach the actors as well. Um, there's many different styles. You know, I am a highly energetic, clownish joker, you know, but, you know, others are more paused and relaxed. And, um, but I'm, I'm all about like, yeah, come on stage and try it artistically. You know, folks want to talk about what they would do, but but we want them to try it in the I, way.
1: yeah. I I I wonder. I'm I'm having so many flashes. I, first flash is I do recall many years ago. I think you were one of the organizers of like a like a day event with Augustus Augusto Boal and Julian was there. And Augusto had done some, something, I can't remember what the, what the issue was. It's exactly, but then there was a conversation after and somebody had asked about safety. And he was like, (laughs) I just remember him being like, there is no safety. Safety is not a thing or something like his he was like dismissive and also like like appalled at the question at the same time it was amazing because it was like yeah well yeah that makes sense because this is about the oppressed but it was it was coming from like a place of like we work in schools
2: and we have to be safe <laughs> right, right, right. yeah. he uh-huh. he quite didn't have that language, you know, because he came from, you know, he came from a context, obviously where you were doing if you you know, he was in Brazil during several military regimes, dictatorships, mm-hmm. where he literally got arrested and tortured for doing theater and had to go into exile, mm-hmm. you know. He went into exile to Argentina. There was another military regime in Argentina, right? So the the idea of doing invisible theater in, in totalitarian spaces where you could be murdered for doing theater, the dangerous thing to do, of course makes total sense. So he's coming from a place where your safety (laughs) <laughs> and the urgency around safety, it's because yes. you're, you're at the end it's of the barrel right. of a gun, yes. <laughs> which is the relative. It's so much different than the relative safety that we have, and I say this in air quotes for oh, yeah. relative good. safety because for some communities there's never been safety, right? Mm-hmm. But for some of us, the relative safety of of just having the freedom to do theater and to do it in educational spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, when he went to France, you know, people their notions of oppression were internalized oppression so that's where rainbow of desire comes from you know his wife cecilia is a psychotherapist so he 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 had you know experience with psychotherapy but this is where um rainbow of desire comes from because people were dealing with internalized oppression and of course he wasn't going to do psychotherapy or drama therapy he was going he was going to think about, well, how can we really connect all of those things that we internalize with the sources in the real world that yeah. that really sort of, you know, um, the culture that 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 the police, if you will, our behavior Um, so that's what he did. And so Rainbow of desire is predominantly image theater that can lead to forum theater, but it's about exploring internalized oppression, which has, you know, Real, <laughs> real um, oppressors in 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 the real world, right? So mm-hmm. we deal with all sorts of internalized matters, homophobia, heterosexism, yeah. sexism. How do you know body image and mm-hmm. wellness and all of those things that we internalize? But of course, we didn't grow up. We didn't. We weren't born with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so that's that is that is that is the work. But in terms of the notion of safety, this is something that that. I as a facilitator address very early on in my, in my classes and in my practice and say that, of course, there's going to be relative safety in this class. I'm not going to ask you to, I'm not going to force you to do anything. And I'm not going to ask you to throw yourself off the cliff. And, and I'm going to ask you to take care of your body. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and there's no right or wrong way to play these activities. And so hopefully you're not going to do anything that it's going to um, uh, be unsafe for your body. I cannot guarantee that you will not not be triggered, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or uh, uh, or have your trauma come up, right? I'm not trying to do it intentionally. Obviously your colleagues in the class are not gonna do it intentionally, but we're gonna be talking about oppression, about the messy elements of, of, of um, how oppression operates in the world. The first step in addressing it, addressing it is naming it, and yes. dealing with its factors. So we will have trigger warnings. Obviously, we we'll say we're going to talk about assault, <laughs> we're going to talk about violence, we're going to talk about racism. But you have the responsibility to figure out how you engage with the work, right? Mm-hmm. And stay engaged, and you know, you know, take a time and share with us. Um, Um, but it's going to be a constructive space. It's not going to be a safe space because I cannot guarantee that you're not going to be triggered Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and it's going to be an uncomfortable space at times because Mm -hmm. you have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable about the things that are really messy in our, in, in the world. Um, so I often say to folks, you know, bring Stories that and experiences that you have processed to a certain degree. Mm. Right. So I say to folks, no open wounds in this class, right? Yeah. Scars. Scars. Let's, wow. let's, de- let's deal with scars rather than open wounds. If it's too fresh, if it's too recent, it, this might not be the space to deal with it because our goal here is to deal n- with politics right with and by politics we mean the 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 um relationships of power who has the power and why and how can we shift that you know in society um it's not group therapy it's not drama therapy in the way that we do it right so raw emotion might be best for you to address in a place um of individualized yeah. therapy and group therapy um where you can be supported through those emotions here we're thinking about the collective the you know as many as we can to shift um and it will be emotional
0: thank you for listening to episode 58 act one of teaching artistry with courtney J. body alex santiago herrao processing the collective scars join us next time for act two this podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jana Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at Artistry with CJB and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook. Listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify. Subscribe and rate us on Apple now. Podcasts, and be sure to share let's this podcast with all the teaching now. artists in your life. Let's start it up now, let's start it up now, Woo.